You are listening to Geek Fest Rants on the IC Robots Radio Network. You have located Geek Fest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. On June 3rd, Paramount brings you a motion picture event. The Keep. Presented at selected theaters in 70mm and 6-track Dolby Stereo. The Keep brings together no less than 14 Academy Award nominees and winners for technical achievements and special effects. Michael Mann directs this startling vision of mankind's ultimate challenge. The Keep. What if this place... for sure. This place was not built to keep anything out. This place was built to keep something in. You must not stay here. Something has been released, something. Did you find what you were looking for? Did you expect to find me? Whatever kills us gets in anyway. Nothing we do, no security works. Everybody and welcome once again to GeekFest Friends. My name is Carlos Perone, and today we are going to take a look at a film that was done back in 1983 by Michael Mann, super, super amazing director. Great looking film in terms of the aesthetics of the film, but a gigantic flop. Probably his biggest bomb to date. It has since then become somewhat of a cult film. It is called The Keep which is a horror film for Michael Mann and an unusual genre for him to go into. But it's the type of film that keeps me kind of coming back every now and then because there's something good about this film, but there's also something unbelievably bad about the film. We're going to look at the movie, the book, and the comic book. Actually, was a comic book version of it. Then we're going to shift gears and go look at Star Trek toy spaceships. Specifically, the smaller size version. Now, there have been a gazillion different toys having to do with Star Trek. But the particular line that I'm going to look at is a combination of Hallmark, Furuta, Eagle Moss, and Hot Wheels. A mishmash of all of those in a certain 
manner. The way that I'm approaching it is through Starfleet. Specifically, more or less, the Enterprise type of looking ships. The range is so huge that you have to kind of rein yourself in a lot of times to figure out what to collect because there are so many brands and most of them are really, really amazing looking. But as you define your focus collecting, you have to, as usual, create your rules. So let's begin with the keep. What did I teach you? You are the Duke of New York. You're a number one. You will not laugh. You will not cry. You will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Can you dig it? Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. That horn of Satan. <laughs> oh, really? The Force will be with you, always. All right, today we're going to hit a genre film that could, I guess, be categorized as a horror film. However, the manner that I'm approaching this film is more through the novel of the film. Recently, what I've been doing quite a bit now is I've been collecting, finding on eBay mostly, uh, or even in some thrift shops and that sort of thing, movie tie-in novels, you know, based on some kind of film that came out. And in the process... You know, films that I wanted to know a little more about, this is where this comes in a little pretty handy because a lot of times you can get a lot more background information on movies that kind of left you with questions. Well, there was a movie called The Keep that I had seen probably on cable, I imagine, in some shape or form a long time ago. And the movie kind of left me with so many questions and so many mixed feelings about it because it does have a very cool aesthetic in terms of what things look like in this film, the mood that is set, but it is also a very choppy movie. It doesn't seem like it's very well connected to itself. The story seems to be missing chunks here or there. So after forgetting about it for a while and then coming back to it and that sort of thing, I ordered the uh, novel. Uh, now, in this particular case, the novel was written before the film, uh, which was written by F. Paul Wilson. Now, here's a situation where it's a little different. You know, a lot of, like I said, a lot of times the novels are done after the film, but this is a reverse, which is a very common practice, I guess, for Hollywood. You know, when you adapt a screenplay, you know, from already existing material. Uh, and this is exactly what you have here. A second manner in which I approached the film later on was through finding out that it was an earlier film from Michael Mann. Now, Michael Mann has been, you know, in our radar for a very long time. I probably first heard of him, you know, around the time of Miami Vice when the show basically exploded into television. This was a situation where... Historically, nowadays, the show gets branded as MTV Cops. You know, once the MTV revolution started on television and we started to get all those music videos and all of that music culture started to permeate the airwaves, again, especially with all the music videos attached, which is what MTV used to be, was mainly a music video channel. The idea 
cropped up of having a you know a more stylized cop show than ever before. We've done uh, an episode about this a very long time ago, and it's very easy to kind of put it in that bubble, give it that label, if you will. You know, the MTV cops. Let's just do a cop show that's cool looking. Well, yes and no. That is partially true, but with somebody like Michael Mann, you're dealing with a director that. And at this particular case, a producer, director, you know, he was, you know, doing a lot of the, the work, you know, behind the scenes also, who was working on his his aesthetics, if you will. He has developed through his career a certain look, I guess you could call it, a combination of look and sound, music, sound, and look. Very difficult to really pin him down as to what category you can put him in. He's a serious director. He is, I would say, somebody in the world of Ridley Scott, let's say. Somebody with artistic talent who is very concerned with the picture, what you're showing people, what you're trying to portray, by not necessarily dialogue, but by the images you're showing. And his combination with music, which is even bigger, I think, than even Ridley Scott, again, he he makes this mood. He builds this mood with the music and the images. Now, granted, Miami Vice is not exactly a piece of what I would call art because it does have to live within the world of a weekly television show, you know, where you have about 45 minutes worth of time to tell a story and you have to have these breaks so you can put the commercials in between the breaks and there's a certain structure to it. But he had done television before, obviously not not so much as a creator, but more, more of a contributor, but this was his chance to go full out, you know, and try to create something with his name on it. So with Miami Vice, you know, it gave him a certain cachet to be able to continue, you know, exploring directing. But again, if you're just dealing with uh, movies, you know, uh, films, think of movies like Manhunter, Last of the Mohicans, Heat, The Insider, Ali, Collateral, Miami Vice, the the movie version, Public Enemies, Black Hats, and currently he's doing Enzo Ferrari. You know, he's big with bioepics type of films, especially recently. However, before he hit it big, there were a couple of other films, uh, even before Miami Vice. And that would be his first film, Thief, with James Caan, which you start to kind of see the beginning of his style. And The Keep, which was a horror film, I guess you can categorize it as that. Very different because he has never since (laughs) done uh, something in that genre, the way that he's done it. He's more, again, uh, stereotypically cornered into the crime drama kind of guy. He had a second television show called Crime Story. Again, dealt with cops and the style. I think it was based on the 60s, uh, Vegas uh, uh, location as opposed to Miami, you know, with Miami Vice. So you have to kind of, you know, figure out where we're at with this director because every director has a couple of films, you know, in their resume that they're really, really not too crazy about. And a lot of it gets chucked off to being, well, that was my first film. I didn't know what I was doing or the film was taken away from me. I lost this. I lost that. I couldn't do it. I couldn't have enough money. I didn't have that, you know. So this is where this film kind of falls under is is one of these not very successful films 
financially, especially in the movie theater, obviously. But it's been one of these films that does have a slight, I could say, cult following. You know, there are people that are really into this movie. And at least from my perspective, you know, going back and saying, well, you know what? I've been watching all these Michael Mann films, but hey, there's a couple more out there that I've never heard of that I've never seen. So that's how, you know, you kind of jump on this uh, train of trying to go back and trying to see these earlier, you know, films from some of your favorite directors. And, you know, in Thief, you do have a certain amount of uh, Michael Mann style visuals and sound. I mean, the music for Thief was from Tangerine Dream, which also does the music for The Keep. So at the time it was a, it was a good combination, but with the keep, yeah, here you are back again in a completely completely different setting. Uh, granted that he is capable of moving around historically. Last of the Mohicans is a fantastic film that, to me at least, it's one of the least Michael Mann films, but one of his best. You know, if you if you kind of understand what I'm saying. Here you're dealing with World War II. The setting is set perfectly visually as far as I'm concerned. The story is, again, based on this book that I just read. And I'm going to kind of compare the two because there is a definite diversion taking place where the story goes in one direction for many of the details and the movie goes in another direction for many of the details, but for many, really, really multiple reasons. The story of the book is basically a German commander, let's say, an SS Nazi commander is sent to a area of Romania where there's a keep. A keep is kind of like a, I mean, it's been described as a citadel. It's not a full-blown castle, if you will. It's kind of like a very small part of a castle formation uh, that is not made for luxury, you know, for whatever, you know, kings or or lords or whatever used to be there around that time. It's more of a place to kind of rest or a place for a a war post, almost like a fort, if you will, you know, uh, nothing luxurious, something uh, that could withhold, you know, some kind of a fight, let's say. So, What's happening here is a Nazi commander is being dispatched to this area uh, where there's a keep that has a number of German regular soldiers stationed there, you know, kind of guarding a path because this is World War II. And, uh, you know, it's it's a strategic path that has to be guarded. But in the very few days that they've been there guarding this path, every night one of their soldiers has been dying, killed, violently killed, and they can't figure out why this is happening. So we kind of then go back in time, you know, a few days in the story to learn of the commander that got there first. And this is a commander that's commanding regular German army troops as opposed to, you know, SS Nazi troops. So they do clearly from the beginning create this difference between these two branches, if you will, of military that happen to you know, be around during World War II in the German side. So the more, let's say, traditional German soldier is the guy that gets there first, and he's learning about this keep because it's a very unusual place. As they go in, as they approach the place, they have to pass by a small village. And the people are kind of, you know, a little scared of what's going on. Uh, granted, it, it, the way that it is explained is that they're not really there conquering them. They're, Romania is supposed to be an ally of Germany. However, you know, you can kind of tell easily who's in charge. 
And, uh, you know, they kind of go into the keep. And the first thing they notice is that there seem to be these unusual shaped kind of crosses everywhere on the walls. And, you know, they can't really tell what this is all about. And then they meet a caretaker that lives in the village that explains to them that his job is to basically fix anything that breaks down and to keep the place up and running. That's his job. He doesn't know exactly who owns the keep, but that's what he gets paid to do. And, you know, his family has been doing it for ages and his kids are doing it too, his sons. And so the German commander, you know, he kind of doesn't worry too much about it. But off the bat, right in the first day, one of the German soldiers attempts to remove one of those crosses from the wall, thinking that it's made out of gold or silver or something, and is admonished for it because, you know, the this commander kind of runs a tight ship. He doesn't let his men, you know, vandalize or steal things, even though they're in a war. So what starts to happen little by little, night by night, is that, especially uh, starting with the first night is that one of these German soldiers is able to pry, with the help of another soldier, the cross off the wall, and then in the process pull one of the stone blocks off the wall, revealing a second chamber inside one of these walls. And in this second chamber, the soldier crawls through because he feels there's probably gold down there hiding. You know, he's under the impression that, you know, there's there's a treasure being hidden here or something. And something attacks that soldier, rips his head off, basically. And the other soldier is, you know, in shock and practically in a shock-induced coma, more or less. So they start to investigate, you know, what happened, what happened, what happened. The other guy won't talk. The other guy can't talk. One guy is dead. Then the second guy dies mysteriously again, violently. And then this happens for a number of nights to the point where, you know, the commander, whose name is Borman, he sends this dispatch and, you know, he wants to get his troops out of there. But instead of that, what they do is they send the German Nazi troops to kind of reinforce things and kind of take over and figure out what's going on. And that's basically the beginning of the story, you know, and the book where the book started a little later when things had already gone kind of downhill. So the commander that arrives, the SS commander, is Kempfer. And like I mentioned earlier, we do create, you know, from the beginning, this adversarial relationship between a more old-fashioned, if you will, military guy versus the Nazi, you know, new kid on the block who's has total disregard for the authority that has been created with the military and the tactics of the military as opposed to the tactics of the Nazis and their disregard for civilians and just about anybody. So as the story progresses, we also meet a couple of other characters that are starting to be affected by what's happening here. One of them is a man named Glenn, who is living at the time somewhere in Greece, I think, or something. And once that stone is removed and something happens to that first soldier, it almost kind of sends a message to him that something is wrong somewhere and he has to get over there to try to resolve what the problem is. So we then follow Glenn through a whole bunch of trips that he has to make to get all the way from, you know, one side of Europe to the other side, from the Mediterranean all the way, you know, to the Romanian side. And he has to travel through different boats and meet different people. And some of them try to kill him and he has to defend himself. And we kind of learn that he's very mysterious. He's carrying a secret case. He's very agile and very strong in terms of being able to fight people off and that sort of thing. But then we also meet another 
group, another uh, protagonist in the story, who is a, a father and daughter team, if you will. And they are living in, in an area of, I think, Budapest, I think it was, if I remember correctly, where little by little, they're starting to see the effects of the Nazis rounding up gypsies, harassing Jews, that sort of thing, you know, the typical Nazi playbook type of thing that we know about. And the father is in a wheelchair. He looks much older than he is because of his ailments. Uh, he can't walk. His hands really hurt. And his daughter is kind of taking care of him uh, all this time. So back in the keep, as the SS soldiers uh, start to also get uh, killed, they question the caretaker and get him to try to spit out a name of somebody who might know something about who owns the keep, who's responsible for this, who's making this happen, that sort of thing. And he kind of gives him the name of the old man uh, that I just talked about, whose name is Dr. Kuza, and his daughter is Eva. So they call for Dr. Kuza. So they go and they pick him up. I mean, this, it takes like about a day, you know, for him to finally get there because they're, you know, they're uh, far away. They have to travel by truck or whatever. They have to find him and they bring him in because he's an expert in the area. He's been there a number of times in the past to study the keep. And so one of the things that they do show him in terms of possible things that could help trying him to figure out what's going on is a couple of these ancient writings and stuff like that, that they found somewhere, you know, hitting in, in, in the keep. And he starts to study what's going on and understanding the fact that if he doesn't figure out what's happening, he's going to get killed just like a lot of other people are going to die. And his daughter's there too. So during this couple of days, there are a couple of confrontations that all of a sudden Kuza is approached by a figure that is very scary, large, powerful, who hints at having to do something with vampires. And 500 years prior, he might have been part of Vlad the Impaler's reign. Kuza is a historian, so he starts to kind of talk to this creature. And this, and at one point, the creature even, who's, who goes by the name of Mullisar, um, even rescues his daughter because some of the Nazi soldiers tried to rape her at one point. So he is under the impression, or he starts to become under the impression that he could probably form some kind of alliance because this creature seems to want the invaders out of his keep, out of his country. So he's like, well, you know what? I kind of want that too. I want to get rid of these German soldiers, Nazis and everything. So maybe I could help him figure out, you know, what to do so he can then, you know, uh, work all his way, you know, to Berlin and maybe possibly even kill Hitler in the process. But while this is happening, Glenn finally arrives to the area and he starts to kind of study what's happening too. He meets up with Eva at the uh, inn, you know, where the little village before him, because they, they sent Eva away at a certain point. And he starts to kind of tell her a different story that Little by little, she starts to learn that Molisar really is not who he claims to be. He's a being from the past, just like Glenn is. And that, uh, you know, they've been here since, you know, before all these different civilizations. They go even further back than 500 years, this whole thing about being a possible vampire. Because up to this point, everything is pointing towards vampirism. And that's just apparently just a cover that he's using. And this is a, again, they are both beings from a different time that is almost non-existent. They even, they even hint at the fact that maybe this is a certain time where even Atlantis might have been around. And as a result of whatever happened 
everything disappeared except for these two beings now. One of them that's been entrapped in the keep, the evil one, let's say, and another one that's been just kind of watching out for him, which is the Glenn character. So to make a long story short, the story becomes more fantastical and more fantastical and more supernatural to the extent where you have a final battle take place. Malasar is able to use his powers to not only revive the dead soldiers that he's been killing to fight for him against Glenn and other soldiers that are still alive. He can control the rats that are there and the rats attack, you know, some of these characters too. It does touch on some of these vampire kind of myths or powers. You know, he lets them believe that, you know, the cross is something that he can't touch. It's an evil thing that he can't get near it or something. But that was just, that's just a ruse to make them, you know, uh, strengthen that vampire belief when in reality he couldn't care less. But there is something that he does need, and that is a certain artifact that is hiding in the keep. It's buried in the bottom of the keep that he's using these dead soldiers to dig for. And then later he uses Dr. Kuza to dig for because Kuza kind of loses himself. He's so into the idea of being able to kill Hitler and kill all the Germans that he completely disregards his daughter and his daughter's warnings from Glenn that he's being manipulated to do something, and that is to find this artifact and get it out of the keep, because Molossar tells him that uh, that's the only way he can come out of the keep. He needs to hide it from them because it's a, something that, you know, it's the source of his power. But Glenn basically says, no, this is the thing that's keeping him in. So he needs to keep this thing hidden. And in the book, the whole story basically culminates in a final battle between Glenn and Molazar. And Molazar's real name is Razalom, which is Molazar backwards. Molazar, at one point, uh, you know, in order to strengthen Kuza, he um, cures him of his ailments so that he can work for him and, and do his bidding. He's, uh, you know, again, you're, you're, you're kind of seeing these, these, Dracula-ish kind of characters, you know, you have the guy that's helping Dracula who's promised, you know, something, you know, you, you kind of have that. There is a little bit of that in there, even through the, the rest of the movie. When we realize, we find that it's not a vampire story, but the vampire myth and the vampire tropes are still there. Uh, so at one point at the end, he removes all that from him because Kuza realized that, you know, he's hurting his daughter. He hits her with the amulet and knocks her to the ground and and then he realizes wait a minute maybe he is lying to me and and then when that kind of thing falls apart he's attacked by the rats and he's he gives him back all his ailments in one shot you know he, so um he is uh, he's killed so you're down then to Glenn and Molasar and Eva so they have this epic kind of battle with Glenn has this special sword, and once he's able to grab the amulet and connect it to the sword, you realize that the amulet is basically the hilt of the sword that he's carrying. And the hilt itself is the shape of all those crosses that kind of decorate the entire keep. It's one of the things that, again, keeps Malazar imprisoned in there. Glenn is able to defeat him, and in the process, he's mortally wounded because he, you know, he was shot up before, but the the sword itself helped to heal him. But at the end, at the very end, he is revived again. You know, he's he gets his strength back, and it appears as if he's losing his powers, his supernatural powers. He's kind of becoming a man, a regular man, and that's kind of like the end of the love story, let's say, for the story. So that is the 
summary, more or less, of the whole story uh, in book form. Now, for the movie, it was explained earlier in some of the interviews that exist out there. And here's the thing is that it's really kind of difficult to be able to find enough source information on this because it is not a very popular movie and Michael Mann really doesn't seem to like to talk about it too much in the first place. So there are some pre-movie interviews that you can get an idea of what the director has in mind of what he's going to do. And then you have some post-movie interviews where he's just like... He's just not happy <laughs> with what happened. You know, he's like some things he was happy with, and, and but a lot of things he just wasn't. And I have two sources that if you're really interested, you can go and look online. And this is the sources that I used to do uh, a lot of the research that I've been doing here. One is a website called kitray.net. It's K-I-T-R-A-E.net. And the other one is thekeep.ath.cx. So it's the dash keep dot ath dot cx these two uh sites give you a lot of really cool information and a lot of research that these two people have done into the making of this movie and whatever future and there is believe it or not a weird future having to do with this movie but going back to michael mann you know again he's he's done with uh thief his next film is going to be this movie and what he expresses in some of these interviews is that he wanted to make a movie that was kind of like a dream, like a like a fairy tale dream, like a a weird historical fairy tale, if you will. Uh, now, when you say that to me, especially after watching this film, I'm thinking Pan's Labyrinth. You know, a movie that takes place during World War II, I think, and it does inv- doesn't necessarily involve Nazis, I think, but they're uh, Franco troops, which are allies of the Nazis during uh, World War II, so taking place in Spain. Uh, so that's what I'm thinking about. When you're combining a World War II setting with the horrible realities of World War II with a supernatural element, a fantastical element, here's what I think Michael Mann was shooting for, which is a completely different thing altogether because, you know, all of a sudden he's making a movie that is not a standard kind of movie. He's picking his second film to go in a completely different area, which is very unusual. And again, in some of these interviews, you know, he he was saying that from the start, he was going to take the book and completely redo it in his own manner. He was not going to take the book you know, shot by shot, scene by scene, he was going to, off the bat, eliminate any kind of vampire-y looking, sounding uh, references altogether and make it more like a like a lucid dream kind of uh, uh, experience, which, again, I, don't, I have no idea how that could be. But as the film was being made, we start to hear of certain problems that were happening. For the record, the film stars Scott Glenn as Glenn, Jürgen Pinchow, a very famous German actor. He was in Das Boot. Uh, Ian McKellen, you know, out of all people, he has an earlier role in this film. And it's interesting because there's a lot of makeup with him having to do with him playing a frail older man who then is given youth and health and then it's taken away from him again. So you have a back and forth of a little bit of a makeup appliances taking place. And it's funny because it's like, you know, they made him look old, but he looks older now. Obviously this has been this movie's like what, thirty years old? <laughs> it's ridiculous how old this movie is. Over thirty years old. Alberta Watson, who plays Eva, and Gabriel Byrne. Again, another Great, great actor. He plays the uh, the Nazi commander. 
Kempfer. So, you know, you have a, at least here, you have four really big, big names uh, attached to this film. The film had a $6 million budget, and its primary photography was done in about 13 weeks. However, because they had so many problems, the budget ended up skyrocketing to about $11 million. So they almost doubled the budget while this film was being made, and the shooting schedule increased to 22 weeks. So that almost also doubled. So they were having all kinds of issues. The issues they were having was that once they got into the post-production part of the film, uh, their chief visual effects supervisor a man by the name of Wally Beavers died. And the problem was that there were many, many, many optical effects, special effects, practical effects that were shot that only he apparently knew how to get them done. And he hadn't told anyone or shown anyone how to do it. So they ended up having to reshoot a lot of stuff to make up for those effects, you know, not being able to be used because of this poor man dying. In the process, they had to redesign the look of the creature, and they ended up doing three different versions of it, which in the film, they ended up using three different versions of it. But again, there were so many uh, things having to do with redoing it and redoing it and redoing it again. You could say maybe it's an unexperienced director who doesn't, hasn't made up his mind on things, but there are reports of having to rebuild certain parts of the keep for reshoots and then rebuild them again and rebuild them again and reshooting a lot of the fighting, a lot of the ending of the film. But it got apparently to the point where the studio said, all right, that's enough. We're not going to do any more reshoots. Whatever you have, you have to make it work. You have to live with it. So at that point, what, what happened was that when they did the first assemble edit, and from what I understand, the assemble edit is not really an editing. It's just a matter of assembling all your footage and just basically putting it in order in story order, just to see what's there. And the initial assembly was over like three and a half hours long. The director, Michael Mann, envisioned a film that would be about two hours long once he was able to extract all the unnecessary material. And he was looking at a two-hour film. However, the problem was that there were still a lot of things that had to be reshot and the studio had already pulled a plug on it. So the studio said to him basically, okay, Take this two-hour cut of yours, make it 90 minutes, make it work. We're not giving you another dime. So that's what he ended up doing. Now, the problem is that by not being able to reshoot the end scenes that he was trying to shoot, in the film, there were supposed to be this final battle on top of the keep, as the keep is kind of crumbling in sections, and Glenn and Molossar are fighting on top, and, you know, all kinds of special effects are taking place and they're like, like flying in the air and that sort of thing. But again, they ran out of money. They couldn't do that. So they had shot some other material of them fighting underneath the keep, like in one of the catacombs underneath and those special extra rooms. So there's a lot of stuff like that, that we end up seeing. A lot of the effects for the film are very dated. They're very easily looking like animation, like, you know, lightning effects or that kind of stuff that just uh, just screams out, uh, nowadays at least, it screams out 80s cheap 
graphics, uh, not even graphics, it's really animation. It's really rotoscoping and hand drawing these animations to make it look like lightning or some kind of rays or something like that. They shot a lot more of the original story. Granted, like I said before, they did extract a lot of information. They did mix things around. Certain things don't happen in that way. In the movie, the SS officer kills the other officer, the German officer, but in the book, it doesn't kind of go that way. It's different. It works differently. In the movie, they completely discard Molossar's ability to raise the dead and have him use the dead as an army to kill the rest of them there. In the movie, they completely bypass that. It's left out there somewhere. You don't exactly know. There's more things happening where as Molossar's power grows, it starts to corrupt even the people in the village. And in the movie, you get to see a little bit of that. You see a lot more of it in the book. You know, they show you that a lot more. The movie itself is also, again, because of the lack of funds and the lack of them not even being able to complete their reshoots, it's so choppy. You do have the music by Tangerine Dream, which is great. It's a great music. It is one of the things that when you combine the music and the aesthetic, the cinematography that's there, especially in the beginning and and, and the middle of the film, you do get to see a little bit of the Michael Mann style something that's going to carry on in the future in this film. So you do get some of that. It is not a complete loss as far as I'm concerned. Because, there, again, this is a movie that there was something... Uh, the movie, it doesn't exactly work. But there was something in this movie that kept me kind of going back to it. It's like, but but wait, but wait. It's kind of like when I saw Dune. Dune doesn't work. The original Dune, the David Lynch Dune, is not. it's not a great movie. But there's great things in it that sometimes keeps me kind of going back and going, is it Lynch or is it the story? You know, what is it? There's some good in here, but overall it's not a good thing. (laughs) It's an unusual situation. Another problem they were having is with the monster itself. They kept changing their mind as to what the monster should look like. And again, some of these special effects having to do with the monster were also centered around this special effects supervisor that died. The initial look of the monster is really, really weird. When we first see him in the movie... They do this effect, which I don't think I've ever seen before, which is some kind of a creature, let's say. But the creature is bellowing smoke. But the smoke is kind of wrapping itself around the creature, so you don't really see the creature. You see this almost cover of smoke that the creature is creating. However, it is shot in a certain way. I think it is shot backwards because the smoke travels in reverse. So in other words, the smoke seems to be emanating from the center and then engulfing the sides and the back and entering the creature. So as this creature is walking, you see this this rounding kind of effect with the smoke. And underneath the smoke, you see this red glowing eyes and these things. You can't really see what this creature looks like. That is really well done. And that is one of the ones that you're still trying to, like, you look at it and you're like, it's not like a cheap visual effect. You're kind of trying to figure out, well, how did they do that? How does that work? So that's a really cool effect. But then you have a secondary version of the of the monster. And it's a very, like a large humanoid shape, very muscular, very, almost like you can see the inside muscles of the creature. Very thick neck, very, very huge head. Looks a little like Thanos, let's say. <laughs> Looks like some of these Marvel characters that we see these days. And then they did a third version, which is kind of like the second version, except they remove most of the, most of the muscle and it's more of a solid look, more of a solid skin look, but it's still a large creature type of man thing. 
And I guess maybe what we're seeing is as the creature gains its strength, it is reforming its body. So you kind of are seeing the inside of the creature and then a little bit of the outside. And then you finally get the final form when you get to the third phase of the creature. Now, one interesting trivia fact uh, is that the actor that portrays the creature, the man inside the suit, his name is Michael Carter, who was also the guy that did the character of Bip Fortuna in Return of the Jedi on that same year. Now, again, because the movie ran into so many problems with all these special effects and all these uh, reshoots that they had to do, initially it was supposed to be released in the summer of 83, which would have been... Return of the Jedi summer, uh, but then they pushed it to the uh, winter of 83, which meant it eventually got released in December. The movie completely tanked. I mean, if it was released in the summer, we could have said, well, Return of the Jedi ate everything up, but this thing was released in the winter and it was still a complete mess as far as uh, uh, the box office results. The movie was released on VHS and it was later released on Laserdisc, but it has not been released as far as I can tell in the U.S. market on DVD or Blu-ray. You might find some copies, you know, some uh, foreign copies somewhere or people's, uh, you know, dubs from laser to to DVD and that sort of thing. But officially, Paramount's never bothered uh, to release it. There have been a couple of false starts, uh, but that never happened. There is, believe it or not... <laughs> an ongoing project of trying to get Paramount to release it. And there's also a documentary that's been in the works for a long time also, which I don't know if it's ever going to come out. There is a Facebook page having to do with it. That is a, the keep documentary. I think it's called. You can, you can look that one up. There's a video trailer on YouTube for it. Hopefully it will come out one day. This is one of those documentaries that I would love to see because of the research that some of these people have done. And again, a lot of this research is on those two websites I mentioned earlier. And it kind of reminds me of, uh, of that other movie, the, uh, the Island of Dr. Moreau that remember we talked about a while back being a really pretty bad movie, but the story behind the making is almost more interesting than the actual movie itself. But here, yes, you do have apparently a lot of good information out there, uh, that is being put together as a documentary. The writer of the book also was never pretty happy <laughs> with the results. He kind of understood, I think, early on also that the director really did not want too much help because the director was going to take his work and go somewhere else with it. So a lot of the feedback that you hear back, you know, having to do with the writer um, is that he's not very happy. He doesn't consider the movie to be very good. And again, it's a lot of having to do with the second half of the movie. Uh, once you get to the a climax of the final battle and, and figuring out exactly what is happening, it kind of falls apart. The movie is very, very choppy. You can tell things are missing. Things happen too fast sometimes. Uh, not enough information is there. There is practically no character development whatsoever. And even in the sound, even though you have this great Tangerine Dream music, there are times where even the music chops from one rhythm to another, almost like it's rushed. And again, that's a typical sign of a film getting chopped and chopped and chopped. Like I mentioned, the writer was not very happy with the movie. He later on collaborated with a comic book company called IDWpublishing.com. You guys are probably familiar with them. Uh, they created a series of six comics. I think they published it sometime around 2006. And it is The Story of the Keep, 
based on the book, not the movie, and broken down into six parts. And it is a definitely different style of comic that I've ever seen before. According to the writer, this is his favorite visual version of the story. To me, it almost looks like storyboards in a way, because it's a different style. Again, it's a different style of comic book. It's it's a black and white kind of comic book. But I guess there's also... It's black and white, but there's also blue. So it's black, white, and blue. I don't know if you... I don't know if that's something that's common or it's different just for this comic. But yes, the covers have a little more color, not a lot of color, but the actual inside, when you read the story, it's basically told in black and white, very little detail. It's a specific style. Again, I'm not familiar with comic book styles, but this is a very minimalist style. Not a lot of detail in the pictures. Even the characters, to me, their faces don't look that much detail. They do play with, a, granted, you know, because of the story, I imagine, they do play a lot with shadows, and they do, I guess, bring the blue to be able to give you a third color, a shade to shadows, so you can actually show darker things, but you can't just paint them black or else you won't see anything, you can't make them white because then it's light, so I guess they use the blues to create a seeable dark. Very interesting, and it's also really faithful, super, super faithful to the book itself. Like I mentioned, the story does diverge so many times with the movie. Characters are eliminated, characters are replaced, different characters do things. Even new characters are brought on to the movie that were never in the in the actual book. The movie has a character of a priest that kind of takes away a little bit from the character of the caretaker. So it's it's just weird how they you know, rearrange certain things. You know, I, I'm pretty sure I read somewhere that even, you know, as the movie was being shot, the script was being changed left and right. Uh, so it, it was a troubled production, to say the least. I read this comic. It was a little, little more expensive than I would have wished it was, but I guess it's a little rare to find. I enjoyed it. It's very faithful. I mean, again, as far as I'm concerned, it's probably the most faithful comic that comes from a book because that's the whole point. Usually the comics are comic book adaptations and that's how I, you know, kind of got into this particular niche of collecting is the the comic book adaptation and trying to figure out how truth or, or faithful they are to, to what we see in the screen. But here it's not, but it's done on purpose that way. The only thing I wish this comic would have had, and this is something, again, because I'm not a big comic book guy, I know that at the end of a comic, they also put stuff at the end, commercials, ads for other comics that are in their thing, or letters to the editor, or that sort of thing. I really wish that out of these six comics, they would have had an interview with Paul Wilson to kind of talk about these comics. I'm granted, you know, six issues. I don't expect six interviews, but at least they should have had one, but they didn't. It's also a, a different uh, feel. In other words, uh, the, the comic is not glossy at all. It is uh, a hard somewhat harder cover than than a typical comic it's a little thicker but not glossy and in so, and same thing inside inside the panes you know you don't have the slick glossy feel of a modern comic and again i'm not sure if this is just a style or this was done on purpose because of the subject matter so again you know you can approach this from many different angles you can approach it from a Michael Mann angle, in terms of if you're a fan of Michael Mann films, you got to watch this one at some point because you got to see that there is some good stuff in here. And and for me, I recognized that there was some good stuff in here even before realizing it was a Michael Mann film. 
It was later on when when I realized that I was trying to research Michael Mann films that I watched this film again, and I was like, oh, okay, now that makes kind of sense. Now it's starting to to kind of fit in a little more. You can approach it, you know, from the book point. And I would say this, that if at any point at all you enjoy this story based on the film, if you're looking for more, read this book, because the book was really interesting to me. It's a horror book. They do go really good with the vampire part, at, at least in the first half of the book, you know, where they're kind of like saying, well, maybe this is what we're dealing with. And all signs are pointing to that. So it, it did keep me, uh, you know, uh, interested in, in wondering about it. And I actually ordered, uh, I found online, apparently uh, Wilson wrote a sequel to this book. So I'm going to probably read that at some point when I, when it arrives. Or you can approach it from a comic book angle, and that is, uh, it is possible you run into the comic book and you're like, wait a minute, this sounds like a, an old movie I, you know, that I've seen sometimes. So yeah, you can do that that too. I, I am looking forward to one day, hopefully, them putting out this documentary of the making of the film. And in the meantime, you know, this is again one of these movies that they're not exactly. It's not exactly one of my favorites, but there is something good in this movie that you can tell that they missed the mark, and there were some things were missing. And if they just would have had those things, this could have been a completely different experience. You can collect them all. You are a toy. Battery's not included. Get those wonderful toys. Details on specially marked packages at participating stores. Is that the six million dollar man's boss? It's Oscar Goldman. Why do you have that? That's worth a lot of money. That's much more valuable than Steve Austin. Action figures each sold separately. Hi, I'm Chucky, and I'm your friend to the end. Some assembly required. All your favorite Star Wars heroes and villains. I have three of each. One to display, one to open, and one just in case. One particular collection I want to talk about that I kind of got into and out to throughout the years is Star Trek ships, spaceships. There is a huge, huge way of collecting Star Trek ships. And just like anything else, you know, I've had to come up with rules and build a focus because it is so massive, depending on you know, what period you're talking about in terms of what year it is and what happens to be out there. I've been a, a Star Trek fan, uh, let's say, from the early 80s, because that's really when I started, you know, to catch, I remember the WPIX Channel 11 New York-based uh, reruns of Star Trek, the syndicated airings on Channel 11 back in the 80s, and that kind of is what brought me to the movies, as we've mentioned a couple times before when we discussed Star Trek. And my major collecting entries into Star Trek were Playmates, the figures they made around the time of Next Generation, then going forward. But another entry into collecting Star Trek, to me, had been ships. You know, I, I really liked the ships, and... Granted that we've always had models available, even before, you know, I started collecting Star Trek, you know, since the beginning. The model industry had been one of those things that has been around for a long, long time, not only with, you know, people that are collecting and building models of things like World War II 
ships, you know, sailing vessels, that sort of thing, and then entertainment franchises that hop on that bandwagon, especially with science fiction and horror and that sort of thing, where you have all kinds of science fiction-related material that gets turned into models. Star Wars, Star Trek, you name it, there's a bazillion of them. And Star Trek always had a pretty healthy, I think, you know, amount of models available out there, but models are a little different. Models require a little more time than your average toy, let's say. But we'll get into that a little later. But I would say one of my earliest, at least Star Trek depictions of ships that I got involved with were the micromachines, the lube micromachines. These were sold in sets of three. You would get three ships per set. And just like anything else, it was an ongoing collection that would just a little bit at a time, you get another three, you get another three, you know. And little by little, you would build this huge collection. Later on, I believe they added entire sets that you could buy. I think I might have gotten a couple of those in that manner. I'm talking about sets that would have, you know, like 15, 20 micro-machines and maybe one exclusive. You know, that's when things used to go a little nutty, which they usually end up doing. <laughs> things, Things after a while go a little nuts in terms of you know, trying to locate one ship or having to buy a huge set of something just for that one exclusive ship that's included. The Micro Machine line, I believe, eventually dipped into DS9. It dipped into Voyager, I think. You know, it got pretty far. It got pretty far, you know, before they, they finally pulled the plug on Micro Machines. And the cool thing about the Micro Machines were that the sculpts were pretty nice. They were maybe not 100% accurate in terms of, you know, they're very small and you can't go super, super thin with plastic, especially the type of plastic and rubbery kind of plastic that they use because it starts to bend. So you might have had some areas that were a little thicker than normal just to make them stronger. But the best things about the Micro Machines was they were fully painted and they were really well painted. You know, they had some pretty nice colors. And because they got to a point where there were so many of them that they were able to introduce certain ships that you practically never got to see in any other medium other than if you were to really, really go deep, deep, deep with models and find somebody who's maybe sculpting and casting their own versions of ships, which back in the 80s or even the 90s by this point, because, you know, these these were really from the 90s, if you think about it. Either not a lot of people were doing that, or you just were not aware of it because the internet hadn't hit that big, you know. Now you have all kinds of resin models that people make and sell them, and then you can, you know, paint them, assemble them, and that sort of thing. It's like assembling a model, basically. It's just that they're, they're made out of different material and uh, they're very much smaller in scale in terms of, you know, how these things are produced. But with Micro Machines, you at least, you know, you could assemble a pretty, pretty big amount of ships. And I'm pretty sure I got very far with it. I might have possibly not gotten maybe one or two sets, the the final two. It's always the same thing with me. It's those last sets that are very difficult to find that I end up not finding. And at that time, I don't think I was that much internet-wise involved in terms of locating, you know, I don't know if eBay was even a thing back then. I don't remember. But I did get pretty far. And I was able to, I remember, display 
these ships that I had, all my Star Trek collection ships, on an IKEA glass case that I had purchased. Ironically, it's an IKEA case. I actually have two of them that has moved on throughout my collections, and currently it sits in my office. Both of them sit full of my vintage Star Wars Kenner figures and Kenner accessories and stuff like that. But initially, one of the things that I used to have in that uh, was not only my Star Trek Playmates, but my Star Trek Micro Machines. Later on, other Micro Machines. You know, it, it kind of changed hands. It, it, it became a display case for many different type of collectibles. But it was really cool because you could, you know, all these little ships came with their own little bases. Kind of tiny, but served its purpose. Now, at the same time as I'm collecting these ships, I start collecting also the Hallmark ornaments, the electronic light-up, maybe talking Hallmark ornaments. And the Hallmark ornaments, they've gone through a history so far, and they keep modifying them and making them even better every time. Initially, I believe my first one was probably the Shuttlecraft Galileo, the one that you press the button underneath... I don't even remember if it, I think it does light up a little, but it talks. You have Spock saying, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, you know, something like that. Live long and prosper. And that started, you know, a wave of every year for the last, good Lord, since the mid-90s probably, them putting out a Star Trek ornament, a specific, you know, ship light up talking something. The only one I have never gotten was the original Enterprise, which was either the first one they sold or the second one they sold. It was one of those first ones that, for some reason, I just missed the boat on. But those have also progressed in terms of the, the manufacturing of those. They used to be bulkier because the electronics were a lot bigger inside. They would originally connect via wire to your Christmas tree. These are Christmas ornaments. So they would have a green uh, wire that would come out from underneath, obviously, I guess, to, so it matches your tree. You know, most people would have a, a green tree to put their their ship on. I, up to a certain point, uh, used to have, I mean, I used to mix them in there, but then when I got too many of them, uh, because I was also at the time collecting Star Wars Hallmark ornaments, I would then designate a separate tree, uh, usually like a white tree, so these Ornaments would kind of pop more. It would be easier for you to see them so they don't get so camouflaged into the mix. But that's something that kind of I stopped doing. I'm trying, I'm still trying to rethink how I'm going to display these ships. And that's a collection that kind of grew on the side. Little by little, every year I would have another ship, another ship, another ship. No matter what the ship was, you know, I was collecting just anything Star Trek that would be the official ornament of the year. And those, like I said, progressed. They went from being, like I said, pretty thick because of the electronics. And then little by little, they started to drop the wire and then made them battery operated, which was even better because now you didn't have the bulky wire sticking out of the bottom. The electronics became much smaller. So they, the ships became much thinner and more accurate. And they are some of the, you know, by now, when you buy these ships nowadays, they are some of the most gorgeously sculpted renditions of classic Star Trek ships that are out there. I know that the latest ones, I think there's a Discovery coming out from the new show. And then the previous year, it was the Franklin, I think, from Star Trek Beyond. Uh, you know, not a very popular film, but a gorgeous looking ship that they made for that film. And the, the representation that they sculpted for this was, was dead on. 
So even though I was going on these two collections at the same time, they never kind of intermingled because one was Hallmark ornaments, but would only come out once a year. And I would display them only once a year during the Christmas season. And then the other ones would stay in a, you know, in a, in a display case. If they were still in the display case by that point, I'm not sure. The Hallmark ones, you know, they also had some pretty elaborate, weird ones. For example, the Deep Space Nine station was a whole thing that you would connect and you can hang little tiny ships around it. There were some metal ones. There were some like um, die cast dark metal looking ones. I have a, uh, I believe I have an Enterprise from the show Enterprise in that metal, made of that metal material. Might be even one of these talking ones where you press a button on the base and they talk because they, some of these are really not meant for hanging because the metal ones are very heavy and you put them on a branch and the whole branch will just, you know, come down because it's so heavy. So they would, they would come on a base that you could just, I guess, put on top of your desk or something or some shelf and they would use the base to have sound. Uh, same thing with the uh, DS9 station. You know, you could hang it. I remember I used to hang it and I used to use one of those rotating uh, little motors to hang it from. This way the whole station would just rotate while still holding these little ones. But you could put it on the base, on the included base, and you press the button again, it would talk. And I did have an original classic Enterprise, again, all in metal, which was a, an actual hallmark uh, ornament, I believe. And that would always serve as my substitute for the original ship because I never had, like I said, the original ship. I still don't own the original ship. For some reason, I mean, the prices went through the roof on that particular one. It's funny because you could still find the 1990, I, I don't remember if it was 1996, but the uh, the Galileo, you can still find it every now and then. I've seen it in stores and it's not that expensive and it's almost like, you know, it's like I should buy it because it's so old. But what the hell for? I already have one. However, that Enterprise, nope, can't find it anywhere. That original Enterprise. And I remember a long, long time ago, a friend of mine was like, you know, I can think I can get one for a hundred bucks and I think I'm going to buy one because he was also kind of late in the game, I think, and he was trying to to catch up either for himself or for his brother or something. And he ended up forking down hundred bucks a piece, I think for one for himself and one for his brother. But yeah, for some reason that's a, that is a rare one and it is a hard to find expensive one. So like I said, I have these two collections that are growing at the same time, but not intermingling. Then in the background of this, we also have, or at least I also had, like I mentioned earlier, models. I went through a period where I started to buy models because I wanted to one day start building them. And that's when not only myself, but my friend, we started to kind of think about, you know what, we need to focus our collection. And and I think what we, we were going to do independently of each other, obviously, you know, he was doing it one way, I was doing it a different way. We need to focus on the main ships. And by the main ships, I'm talking about the different iterations of the Enterprise, because that is basically the, the lead ship of the show. It's the, it's another star of the show, if you think about it. The Enterprise is, is as iconic as the characters. So little by little, we both started buying some of them we already had in our collection. We just never build them. Models. There were some sets that had Enterprises that would come maybe two or three in one set. Some of them were single sets. Uh, some of them had Enterprises that uh, were never sold before in any larger scale. Granted, the Micro Machines would give you a sneak peek, if you will, at some of these less-known ships, 
you know, your Enterprise C, you know, your your awkward, uh, different looking ships, you know, background ships, all that kind of scene. The, uh, I think the the Pegasus is there, and a whole bunch of other weird ships that you barely get a look at in the show. But yeah, with models, sometimes you were t- you you started running into that. So I also had a very small collection of Star Trek ships in model form that I never bothered building. They were just you know I they were in bags you know with instructions and everything but we i never had the chance you know initially that our plan was like yeah you know uh, we, we graduate from college and uh, you know let's just take a couple of weekends here or there sit down hang out and, and do some models well that never happened life got in the way you know my, my friend obviously realized that he was not the modeling type of person not a very patient individual so uh, those ships, even the ones he had, they stayed in my house and they ended up in a box and you know with the rest of mine. And, and, and to this day, they're still there. So a couple of years later, you know, again, I was falling back again into this Star Trek mode of, hey, I do have a lot of ships, don't I? And you know, wouldn't it be nice if I could display, let's just say, just the Federation ships. And specifically, most of the ones that are kind of enterprisey looking. I don't want a a hauler. I don't want a, a a shuttlecraft. I just want the main Federation ship looking things. You know, from the different shows. You know, you know your Voyager, your Enterprises. You know, your your, your main uh, movie ships and all that stuff. So, you know, little by little, I started to kind of say, all right, well, I have this one from the Micro Machines. I have this one from the uh, Hallmark collections, but there were obviously gaps. So. I started talking to my friend again, and he started to be able to find, again, through eBay or through websites, but primarily through eBay, I think, a company from Japan called Furuta. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but it's F-U-R-U-T-A. And what they had at the time were these absolutely gorgeous-looking ships. Uh, They were about four inches long, four or five inches long. They came with a base, with a stand, with the name of the ship in the bottom. And you would assemble the ship. They were kind of like snap tight. If you if you can think of, if, if you could picture the snap tight models, the ones that you can just snap into place and they all kind of, you don't need to glue anything. Everything goes into place. Everything's pre-painted. All you got to do is assemble and you're done. So him and I, little by little, we started supplementing our collections. You know, whatever ships we were missing with this company. And what was cool about it is that the size kind of matched a little bit the ones that, you know, the Hallmark size ones. Obviously, they have no scale comparison whatsoever to the Micro Machine ones. But they were very nice looking and especially for those offset, a little more rare type of ships, we were able to find many of them, if not all. And through that company, for a while, I was able to more or less complete or get close to completing the collection that I had. What I've currently done, which I've done once before a while back, but I've kind of redone it again, is I've now been able to display most of my Federation ships, let's say. The Constitution class-ish ships, if you will, you know, the good guy ships. Not the shuttle, again, not the shuttlecrafts, just the ships. 
so you have this whole display area of all these different enterprises and all these different, you know, Voyager and all these other, the, the Phoenix, I think, from one of the, uh, the Voyager episodes. A couple of interesting ships. There's the ship that, I guess, uh, I think the Stargazer might be in there. Enterprise A, B, C, D, you know, all the different Enterprises, you know, and all these little weird ones every now and then. I was able to find also an Enterprise space shuttle in that size because one thing that we were talking about is that in the Star Trek motion picture, there's a shot of this. It's like a rec room, like a meeting room where they're giving a tour in there. And on the wall, there are these portraits depicting the history of the Enterprises. And, you know, before you get to the actual ships that we are familiar with, you have the previous ones. And in that mix, you have a an actual sailing vessel called the Enterprise that's depicted there, which is a historical ship. You have the aircraft carrier Enterprise. You have the space shuttle Enterprise. But what's interesting is that they also have a ship that comes before Kirk's Enterprise and after the space shuttle Enterprise. (laughs) And this particular ship is a really weird-looking ship. And I think we might have talked about this when we talked about the motion picture. Because this one only appears in the motion picture in that room. And if you take a deep dive into Trek Nerdum, you will find that that is called the Enterprise XCV-330. And it kind of looks like something out of 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's It's a ship that doesn't resemble really a ship. It's more like a long tube with the cylindrical... Rings, large, very large rings around them, which I assume that it spins to create artificial gravity. I don't know because we've never really seen that ship in in action. But according to Star Trek lore, this is part of the you know historical line of Enterprises. Very, very different. Like I said, looks nothing like the design that we're used to seeing, you know, the saucer and the and the nacelles, you know, the engines in the back and all that stuff, nothing like it. It's it's completely different. Again, 2001-ish kind of ship. And what's interesting about it is that we've kind of become obsessed with this ship in terms of, you know, nobody's made it. There is no model for it. Micro machines never touched it. Why do they do that? Why would they just skip it? Now, in future films and in future television shows, there would usually be a captain's office or a captain's ready room. And on the wall, you would have also either sculptures or paintings or something that would re- would do that too. They would show you these past ships. And most of the time, even the opening to Enterprise, I think it, it's a montage of the different uh, ships and vessels that had the name Enterprise on them. But they never seem to have gone back to this particular weird design. They kind of skipped this one for future. I don't know if it's a way of retconning it or whatever. But it's out there. There's pictures of it. And there's books that have an artist's rendition of it. Because it was obviously done for the motion picture. Now, this brings us to another company that recently we've been hearing about. They've been around for a while. But we are just kind of now uh, all of a sudden like taking a second look, a company called Eagle Moss. They do ships, miniature ships for many, many different uh, licenses, including Star Trek. But their thing is that these ships are made out of metal. They're 
a little heavier. Size-wise, they kind of fall under, you know, the five-inch range, let's say. And they really, 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 really have gone everywhere with these ships in terms of how intricate, how well-made they are, how sturdy they feel. The detail is just fantastic. They're a little expensive. You know, you could be spending uh, uh, maybe 50 bucks a ship if that's what you're into. But they are little works of art. And recently I've gotten a, uh, as a present, I think it was the J, the Enterprise J, which is from one of the one of the offshoot shows. I don't remember if it was Voyager or Enterprise or one of those uh, where you do see the Enterprise J, you know, futuristic Enterprise. Because, we, you know, we do have all these alternate Enterprises. And... One of the things that this company sells that we are both seriously, seriously <laughs> thinking about is the Enterprise XCV-330. They actually made a rendition of this particular Enterprise that has not been made before in any shape or form. I mean, at least we can't find it. I mean, I'm sure some guy in a garage is probably you know turning out uh, resin models of it or something, but... It's never been touched by the other traditional companies that usually would do this sort of thing. So my display right now, like I said before, consists of a combination of a lot of these Japanese company ones, but I also have a lot of Hallmark ones in there now, especially since they are you know, being put out without the wire for the electronics. They're battery operated. They're super slick looking. And what I've had to do is I had to create, I had to build my own little wire stands for the ornaments because there's no way of displaying an ornament other than on a tree. So, you know, I went online and I know they do sell nice, fancy looking ornament holders, you know, a little base. It's basically a piece of wire with a large hook so you can hang them and you just put them anywhere. Well, what I did was I, I went to Home Depot or Lowe's or whatever. I bought wire. In a roll, comes in a roll, building wire, you know, construction wire. Very thin, as thin as, uh, a little thicker than a than a paperclip, let's say. In a roll, I cut a chunk of it, you know, and with some pliers, I bend them and shape them into how however long I wanted them. And once I figured out the size, I made like 15 of them. So now I have most of my Hallmark ornaments that are very nice looking ones as part of my display, you know, standing on this platform that I am on the shelf that I have. And like I said before, I do have an Enterprise. I actually have two Enterprise-looking uh, shuttles. One is on top of the plane that used to shuttle the Enterprise around. Because remember, the Enterprise was never... Uh, it was the test ship. It wasn't the one that actually went into orbit. It was the suborbital one. It never actually went into space, ironically. I do have a tiny little Enterprise carrier, about four inches long which actually came inside a bottle. It was like a ship in a bottle type of thing. But because of the right size, I said, that's the one I need. It was cheap. So I was able to open the bottle, take the ship out and figure out a way of displaying it. Uh, so I have that. But I am still looking for an Enterprise ship. Now, obviously, I'm never going to find an, a ship that's labeled Enterprise. That's too difficult. So I'm looking for any kind of ship that's about four inches long, let's say, that is kind of old-timey, you know, like a... Revolutionary War or a Spanish Galleon type of thing, because it's kind of murky even within 
Star Trek canon as to which Enterprise ship are they referring to? Is it the more Revolutionary War one or is it the, an English one? You know, which, which way are we going with this thing? Uh, so I don't care. As soon as I find one that's small enough, I'm going to put it there on my display. And hopefully one day I will be able to get this alternative Enterprise, the XCX330. Because again, it looks so 2001-ish. So this is how I have my focus collection of, of Star Trek ships. Again, it is so easy to fall into the pit of completism. I did it with the Micro Machines until they got out of control and they couldn't get them anymore because they were impossible to find. And then, you know, the company stopped making them, obviously. But but I remember there was one point where they were making, like, gold ones. I don't know if they did it for Star Trek, but I know they did it for Star Wars, like, gold ones and silver ones. And it's like, really? You're really going to ask everybody to rebuy everything in a different shade? Why not? They do it with action figures. <laughs> Might as well do it with ships. But again, this is a way of being able to display this collection that I have. And I will uh, periodically put them away and then put something else up. You know, I like to change things because, you know, I don't have that much room. And you, you just cannot, I cannot just, you know, put things on top of things on top of things. No, they're kind of seasonal. So they'll go away for a while. Something else will come up, and I'll be able to look at that for a while, and then put that away, and put this away, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, except for my Star Wars. My Star Wars has to stay up. <laughs> That's the only constant that I have here. But Star Trek, yeah, especially with the new series that's uh, come out last year that is about to start up again soon. I think there's going to be a lot of room for more ships to come out. I know that this company, Eagle Moss, again, I wish I could afford it. They're just so damn expensive. But the, I know they have at least two ships for Discovery. The Discovery and the Shenzhou, I think it was, the, the first ship she was assigned to. And knowing these guys, they're going to come up with, they're going to just do everything because they're that good. So, if you guys are interested in, um, you know, a way of collecting, don't forget you have so many sources out there uh, that you can kind of pick and choose. If, if one company doesn't make a ship, well, get it from a different company. It might not be in scale, you know, but at least you'll have a representation of it. And they're cool little, like I said, the craftsmanship, the sculpting has evolved so much since the early days from the Micro Machines to the early Hallmarks to these Japanese models that were always, you know, dead on fantastic, you know, all the way to these newest Eagle Moss magnificent ships that they have. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed today's show. We first examined The Keep, Michael Mann's The Keep, cult film, bad film, kind of interesting film, fascinating film, you name it. It depends on where it falls on your range. Again, this is a film like Dune, a film that... While I cannot say it's good, there are very, very good things about this film living in the film. But as a whole, it doesn't really kind of stand out that well. Then we looked at Star Trek ships, my particular collection, my particular focus, how I choose to display these ships every now and then, and all the different companies that contribute to my collection in terms of you know, where I found some of the most interesting ones. And as usual, it's up to you to figure out, you know, how to comprise your own collection. So on behalf of everybody here, thank you for listening. And we will see you here soon at GeekFest Rants. Bye-bye, everybody. Star Trek. Enterprise, engage! Star Trek.
Trek Micro Machines. There's a cool adventure in every collection. Micro Machines, Star Trek collections, and vehicle collections, each sold separately. Excuse me, I'm interested in the new collector's ornament from Hallmark. Ah, the shuttlecraft Galileo from the Starship Enterprise. Precisely. You know, it lights up when you plug it in. And listen. Shuttlecraft to Enterprise. Spock here. Happy holidays. Live long and prosper. Fascinating. For a store in your sector now carrying the Star Trek ornament, call 1-800-HALLMARK. Live long and prosper, right? No, I'll take five. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at geekfestrants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2018. <laughs>Broadcast is part of the IC Robots Radio Network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. <laughs>